good weekend? Mm -hmm. Oh, it's already Tuesday for you guys. Um, it's, I think you've seen it. Yeah. Well, then it's even better today. All right, well, thank you. I, I see papers are due today. Um, <laughs> Yeah, if, um, you can give them to me as paper or you can email them to me. If you email them, do them as some kind of .doc or pages or .docx format, not a PDF. Um, okay? Yeah? If we're going to do the, um, the 12 page at the end of the semester, do we have to email you or do we just... No, I'll, okay. I'll assume. assume. Yeah. Okay. And good. I'll assume that those of you who thought that they were going to get their shorter paper in and then... Uh, things got out of hand. We're always intending to do it at the end. So that would be the plan. Okay, yes? Sorry, just a question about the second paper. Is, for that, like, is it, is it going to be the same kind of format as this? Like The second paper, you mean, um, um, I'm going to have to think about it now because I hadn't originally intended for you guys to have a choice between two papers or one long paper. And now that I gave you that choice, I'm gonna re I'm gonna think about. It. I may not rethink, but I'll think about the second one. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is it okay? Because if, if we're submitting the paper today, is it fine if I email it to you like tonight or something? Like yes. That? Like, do you know? okay. Yeah. I yeah. didn't know if you were, were very much of a stickler about like what time. Was. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> what would your guess be if you had to guess? Uh, I mean, if you're anything like John Burt, which seems to be the case, then you don't really care if it was emailed to you next year. But, <laughs> but I'm guessing that we can make a compromise and say tonight is fine. Okay, yes, yeah, so a compromise between tonight and next year is good. Yeah. Um, between or between now and next year. Yeah, if tonight is the compromise, that's good. Um, okay, other questions? What? What are the papers you have? Oh, these are the people who got their papers in on time and okay. have a chance to get an A, unlike the rest of you. It's Sonnet 112. <laughs> no, it's not. It's Sonnet 12, which I'm now... Uh, oh, I read it as 112. <laughs> Good job. That's a completely different sonnet. <laughs> so what do... Here, just like pass these around. Uh, uh, what do people know about Shakespeare's sonnets? Okay, good. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay, good. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting way of putting it. Okay, so the first 20 are, um, are often taken to be, um, and can you uh, uh, give this to Um are often taken to be um, written at the behest of the young man's family. Who the young man is, there's been lots of debate about, um, but written at the behest of his family. Uh, uh, to tell him to stop gadding about and to stop sowing his wild oats and to get married. And, um, but the way Shakespeare basically um, does it by saying, 
good-looking guy like you um, who gets everyone hot should get married because you're not going to stay good-looking forever. And um, boy, do you get people hot. Um, <laughs> it's really kind of interesting how hot you get people. Um, and if you were not a guy, um, I would be hot for you. Um, and, and it's possible that I am anyway, even though you are a guy. Right. Yeah. So then um, it becomes clear, at least, it, it's, it's, there are various debates to be had about the sonnets. Again, this is a debate about what the printer did with, what, with the poems that Shakespeare wrote. Uh, so it's not quite clear whether the sonnets were, an author, were authorized, where the, whether the printer put them in the order that we have them in. Um, it is clear that some of the sonnets, that is, their runs of sonnets, that are um, in a particular order. That is, that one sonnet will pick up from the previous sonnet and, and refer to the previous sonnet. But the general idea is the first 129 sonnets are written to the young man. And um, the rest of <coughs> the sonnets, except for the last two, which seem to have been add-ons um, uh, of two sonnets that Shakespeare had written, <coughs> elsewhere and for different reasons. Um, but from Sonnet 130 to Sonnet 154, which is to say um, 25 sonnets, are written to a dark-haired lady. We know that um, she has dark hair because he says that um, uh, conventional ideas of beauty in which uh, blonde hair and pale skin are prized uh, are, are BS and that um, she's beautiful even though she doesn't fit in with conventional ideas of beauty. And um, the, there are interesting sonnets where um, one in particular where Shakespeare complains or at least the speaker of the sonnet complains that um, the young man and the dark haired lady are both cheating on him, which is already a kind of um, hypocritical complaint, you might say, because if you're complaining that two people are cheating on you, like there are two people who are not being monogamous with me. That's oh. essentially what he's saying. We read this one last yes, semester. Yes, we did. Um, then um, it, it feels like you're demanding more of them than you're, um, you, you are. Um, demanding of yourself. And then um, uh, the problem is that they're cheating on him with each other. So he's feeling like uh, the excluded third in a threesome, which he wanted to be a sort of private threesome. That is him and both of them, but not them with each other. Uh, so the sonnets are showing Shakespeare at his um, least conventional, you might say. And he's very rarely conventional, but here he's not even trying. Uh, one thing to say about sonnet sequences in general is um, they are, in a sense, they go back uh, to an Italian tradition. Anyone know who? Petrarch. Petrarch. Um, in the 15th century. And uh, Petrarch's sonnets to Laura are um, essentially, you can read them as a kind of novel. That is to say, you can see what's going on between them um, based on what the speaker of the sonnets, the figure who identifies himself as Petrarch, is saying about what's, what's happening. 
like, oh, that was good last night, or I can't believe what you said to me last night, and I'm so sad. This is, um, Petrarch is somewhat more eloquent and at somewhat greater length. So you, so you would say that most of the poems address what happened last night? Um, no, but they certainly are addressing how the speaker is feeling about um, today yeah. um, as he's sitting down to write. And uh, so the sonnet comes into English in the early, not that early, but early 16th century. Um, uh, the Thomas Wyatt, um, Thomas Wyatt the Elder, who was probably a lover of Anne Boleyn's and who was imprisoned in the Tower of London and saw her executed. And um, he was then released, but he was a diplomat for... So everyone knows who Anne Boleyn is? Anyone not? Not one bit. Not one bit? No. Okay. <laughs> Who's Anne Boleyn? Someone who knows. Yes. Anne Boleyn was the second wife of Henry VIII. And basically she arguably... Other than Jane Seymour, he arguably loved her the most because she was imprisoned for um, cheating on him, but really he she didn't. Um, it was witchcraft and cheating on him, but really she didn't. It was just that she couldn't have a son. She'd never had a son, and she like miscarried a bunch of boys, so he like just wanted another wife, but he got her a, a French swordsman, which is a much easier, better way of dying than a regular axeman. Um, so there's an argument that he loved her a lot. But yes. Uh, you can tell kidding. a lot by how you kill someone, how much you've loved them. No, yeah. it, I'm not kidding. That's like a genuine I know, thing. I know. Um, he was out but hunting. But she was the mother of um, Elizabeth I. And, yeah, a very important woman in history, especially when it comes to Elizabeth I. Yeah, so... Um, <laughs> I would argue. I'm glad that you had, like, that, you had like, that entire explanation. Like, you were ready. Yeah. Like, like, so, you were ready for somebody to be like, no. And be like, Are you British? No, I'm from Atlanta. Yeah. <laughs> 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 what kind of question is that? <laughs> Being sarcastic. <laughs> then why were, are you surprised? Yeah. <laughs> because because there could have been, I've known many British people, but not any, all of them would be armed with the explanation. No. Excuse you know, me. Not every single one, though. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you get taught in So anyhow. Yeah. No, I, I lived there for two years. I got that lesson. Oh, there you <laughs> yeah, go. Unless you don't okay. go to school, you know who I'm voting. If you watch, <laughs> yeah. or you can watch Wolf Hall or read it. Or listen to Six. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. Um, I didn't love Six as much as other people did. No, you didn't either. Okay. I very strongly did not like it. Did you see it? No, I listened to it. Yeah, I saw it at the ART um, yeah. in the fall. I feel like it works better as a soundtrack than as a production. I agree. There are some shows that are like that, and I think that's one of them. Okay, so Six is about the six wives of... Henry VIII. That's why, if you listen to Six, you'll learn about Al you'll you'll learn something about Anne Boleyn. Um, not the standard things, but um, in the same ballpark, in the same rugby pitch as the standard thing. Um, so, at any rate, um, Anne Boleyn, um, Thomas Wyatt loved Anne Boleyn. Was probably they were probably lovers. Uh, what may be his great greatest poem, the poem um, called "They Flee from Me." Uh, is probably about her, and um, as is Whoso Lista Hunt is almost certainly about her. And um, the one reason to mention Wyatt, besides what a great poet he is and how you should spend every minute you're not reading Shakespeare reading Wyatt, is that Wyatt 
brought the sonnet into English. He is the reason there are sonnets written in English. He translated, but it would be better to say he adapted Petrarch because he changed the sonnets he was translating uh, to make them more more <coughs> applicable to himself. He was... You didn't publish at the time. That's one reason that... Uh, publication of Shakespeare's sonnets, it's questionable whether he approved it. Uh, the way sonnets work, this is true of Dunn, who is younger than Shakespeare as well, is sonnets were uh, given to friends in manuscript, and they were read among a small readership of people who you knew who they were. So they were friends locked, as it were. And the... Um, in, after Wyatt's death in the 1550s, there's a famous book that uh, you should know about as English majors called, um, Toddles, called for short, Toddles Miscellany. Um, its full title is, um, I'm, I can't even give you its full title, but it's Songs and Sonnets by Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey, and Other. Um, other being a plural word at the time. And um, there were several others, but the major other was Wyatt, was Thomas Wyatt. And what Toddle did was he published um, songs and sonnets that were famous from uh, people. Uh, Surrey and Wyatt were, had both died at the time, um, but they were famous uh, poems that people knew about, and now they were um, put out in print. And that book, as I say, is called Toddle's Miscellany. Toddle also edited it and made the, the poems generally by smoothing them out. He made them worse. That is, he did the kind of thing that editors often do and um, made them worse. And Wyatt's actual poetry, the way he wrote it, wasn't published till the 20th century. But you can still see from Toddle's Miscellany how good Wyatt's poet, poetry is. In fact, there is, I just remembered this, a new book has just come out um, in which someone talks about the effect that a single poem had on him of Wyatt's, a single poem of Wyatt's had on him uh, over the course of his life, and it took him 25 years to write this book. He's a friend of a friend, so I'm curious about this book. And um, so that can tell you something about Wyatt. At any rate, once Toddle was published and once uh, Petrarch was, uh, his, his form was well known in England, people started doing, imitating him, doing the same thing, writing sonnet sequences. The uh, most famous of them was by Sidney and it is called um, Astrophel and Stella. Um, Something separate, or you know? <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, don't let me interrupt. Um, uh, Philip Sidney writes a sonnet sequence called Astra Phil, which means star lover, because Phil means love. The word Philip means um, someone who loves, and Stella. So it's star lover and star. And the um, Astra Phil is the speaker, and he's in love with uh, Stella, who is, whether fortunately or unfortunately, married to someone else. And uh, what you read, if you read Astrophel and Stella, is essentially a novel written mainly in sonnets. There are also songs within it, but it's essentially a novel written mainly in sonnets. And the um, idea 
of telling a story through a sonnet sequence that what you're getting is a little bit like what later will be, I don't know, Perks of Being a Wallflower will descend from this. The idea that you guys have all read Perks or seen the movie or know about it or... Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, so a person being a wallflower is just a bunch of letters in which um, we're finding out how the guy is feeling at the time that he writes these letters and we can put, to, put together stuff that's happened since the previous letter. Same with a sonnet sequence. Um, things happen between sonnets and then the first person narrator uh, writes a sonnet about the stuff that's happened since the last sonnet. And um, usually what's happened is his emotions have been put through some ringer or another. And um, then he writes a sonnet about those emotions. There were sonnet sequences written by women also, but a little bit later. So it could be that Shakespeare's sonnet sequence also has the form of a kind of novel. How much of it is actually autobiographical and how much of the sonnet sequence is Shakespeare writing a story in the first person and how much in real life um, the your erotic life is to some extent dictated, especially if you're a writer, by your aesthetic life. That is how much in real life you fall in love because it would make a good poem rather than writing a good poem because you've fallen in love. It's, there's always a little bit of it. Um, it may not be the major reason you fall in love, although I think for some people it is. Um, but it's never nothing because the very fact that you have the, a word for love means that a linguistic expression is in some sense prior to an emotional feeling. So to what extent that would be true about Shakespeare's sonnets, uh, that's that's also something to consider about. To consider, yeah. Um, when like the sonnet form kind of like shifted languages, like did the format change at all? So anyone know what a Petrarchan sonnet is? Mm -hmm. I know that it's no. different structure from an English sonnet. Okay. okay. Do you know? Yeah, it, it just is different. Um, it's usually eight lines and then six lines. Yeah. Or the other. Yeah. So it's usually eight lines and then six lines um, with a different rhyme scheme. And I think that it generally follows like a similar pattern where the first stanza will set up a question or like a situation, and then the last one will answer it or like address that in some way, but it's not quite as like, there aren't like three separate stanzas that sort of take you through the question first. Yeah, so a Petrarchan sonnet generally has, it divides, as you say, into an octet and a sestet. Um, so an eight-line and a six-line section. The eight-line section is coherently a single section because it um, will usually only have two different rhymes. That is, it'll be a standard rhyme will be A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A. And um, that it, it, I think that's probably the most common because A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B gets, uh, just gets a little bit monotonous. But usually it's A, B, B, A, a, B, B, A. Then the sestet, there's more variation in the rhyme, but the sestet will be something like C, D, E, C, D, E. Doesn't necessarily go that way, but that's a common way of doing the sestet. So you have um, one set of rhymes in the octet and another set of rhymes in the sestet, and the sestet never, do, never does what the third 
and what the last six lines of a Shakespearean sonnet do, that is, it's never something like um, C, D, D, C, E, E. Um, that you won't get. So you, you're not going to be able to divide the sestet up into, into smaller um, fragments. Sorry, so, could you repeat what the sestet it, is again? It's sometimes C, D, E, C, D, E. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Um, so I have, I have a more like logistical question about the time in Shakespeare's life, which is that, of course, Shakespeare wrote this enormous amount, and, and, and he would write plays, and of course there's a company that performs them, and people pay to see them. Would he have made sufficient money from solely that to live, or would he have done something else? He made a ton of money. Did he? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's all right. Um, I mean, he made a ton of money for someone of his class. He didn't make a ton of money by aristocratic, uh, in aristocratic terms, but he made enough money to uh, buy his father a coat of arms, uh, which means that he had lots of money to spare and uh, coats of arms were not cheap. Um, so to quote, uh, this actually comes up in The Winter's Tale, uh, he bought, he made himself a gentleman born. Um, that is, he became a gentleman born after the fact by buying his father a coat of arms. He also speculated in grain um, in ways that we would not now find unpleasant. Um, that is, he, um, when there were shortages of grain, he bought it up and sold it at a big profit, kind of like Purell today. Yeah, like for uh, 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 Rothschild. Or what? Or Rothschild, Rothschild. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, I thought, I thought you were referring to 95 masks, which you can get for $100 shipping on Amazon now. Um, no. What? I don't think I understand that. that you just made. Oh, so people who are really worried about uh, COVID-19? Oh, that, um, that thing. You can okay, get a yes. mask, which, if you know how to use it, will filter out 95% of, um, yeah. of particles, virus-sized particles in the air. Yeah, I love, the, I love the if you know how to choose it. Well, that, no, apparently that's a really important thing. Yeah. You saw it because you have to be like trained and it has to be properly fit. Yes. And if, you don't, if you're not trained and you don't properly fit it, you'll always adjust it so you'll put your virus-drenched hands <laughs> on your face all the time yeah. and you'll die. <laughs> so, well, it was a good run. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, he does. Yeah, so he's he's making fun of the uh, the speculating um, the speculator who's um, in the knocking at the gate scene. The speculator is someone who's going to go to hell, but um, he himself was doing something similar. So, is that guilt? Is it good humor? Is it um, um, is it Bloomberg laughing about how many ads he's able to buy that he's in it to stay? Um, who knows? Um, but he knew he knew about speculation. So at any rate, um, so to answer your question, he he did well. He was also I think I mentioned this before. Um, he was what's called a householder in um, in the in the um, King's Men, which is to say that he was one of the two owners in the company, in the repertory company. So you all know that Shakespeare acted in his own plays, and basically the way the company worked was all the actors were also co-owners of the company. So they were shareholders in the company that they acted in. Um, some, ha- some owned more shares, some owned less, but they were all shareholders in the company, and they divided the profits. Um, Shakespeare and Robert Armin 
were also householders, which is to say that they were part owners of the Globe Theater. So not only of the company that was acting there, but also of the theater in which they were acting. And they were the only two members of the company who were also householders, which means that they were the, um, essentially the wealthiest or the, the, the most well-to-do members of that company. Yeah. Would that be like an issue when they like burnt the roof down? Probably, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, they didn't really have insurance at the time. Yeah, probably not. Yeah, Andrew. The, the company, his company, Chamberlain's man, yeah. Kingsman, yeah. that means uh, his company is uh, has some aristocratic, aristocratic or... Patronage, yeah. Patronage. Yeah. Yeah, so they're not, so it's like now, it's like when you're asked whether you, whether after you've paid facility fees and, um, and various other fees for using the internet, internet, um, the suggested donation. Um, his profit must be given, must be contributed to the royal palace or aristocratic nobleman. No, so the nobleman is getting credit for patronage. Um, there, he's, he, it's not an investment. So the, the Lord Chamberlain or the king, what they're doing is they are giving the company money and they're supporting it. Um, they're not getting money back from it. And, um, and the, the people who are getting the money, actors were, um, this is also a famous fact. Um, the reason if you've been to London, um, you know that the Globe Theater and also the Rose Theater, which was found about 25 years ago, um, they're on the south bank of the Thames. Uh, why are they on the south bank? Do you know? Oh. Does that have to do with the 1666 fire? No, know. no, it's before that. No, they, they, well, the globe oh, yeah, it is before that. <laughs> it is before that. Um, because I, theaters were illegal in the city of London. Oh, yeah, they, yeah, and so it's over the border. Yeah, so, it's, it, so at the time, that did not belong to the city of London. Um, theaters were regarded as places where ne'er-do-wells hung out and um, vaped and um, <laughs> did, ah, yes. did, all, did all sorts of things. And and actors, there were, there's a famous law, which is a law for the regulation of beggars and actors. Um, <laughs> and the idea was that being, being an actor was, was, um, was doing, was a, 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 a disreputable profession. And so the getting royal patronage or getting aristocratic patronage was a good thing for a group of people who otherwise would have been thought of as um, very disreputable, sort of like uh, the stickball team on the street rather than the baseball team in Fenway Park. And um, so, so aristocratic patronage, if you were doing really good plays, then uh, your patron got credit for it. And um, the actors who were otherwise not really making that good a living were able to make a little bit better of a living. But, yeah. And uh, I read biography of Shakespeare. Uh, he evolved in jewelry in his lifetime. Speculation, he lent money, yeah. interests, and uh, somebody refused to pay back mm -hmm. his loan, and he sued them, he died them at court. Yeah. Several cases. Yeah, yeah, no, no. He invested uh, some real estate in London. Yeah. Uh, he's a speculator, right? Yeah. In many 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he he took his money and he invested it um, um, effectively, and um, made money out of money, which it you know makes it interesting what he's saying in his plays and um, what he's doing in real life. But he he was no Shylock. He wasn't killing people. Um, or trying to get them killed because they hadn't paid him back. But he was, um, there are lots of legal cases where you can find that he has, uh, there's some record of Shakespeare being involved in lots of legal cases. Yeah. Yeah, so well, I have two questions. One of them is um, how long would, so of course like these actors, they get old and such, or, or like especially kids who play the, the women in the play, they get older. How long would the actors in any one of these companies have actually stayed and performed? I think that they would um, perform, I'm not going to give you an expert answer on this, but I'm pretty sure they would perform while they could. Mm -hmm. That is that one joke in Hamlet is that Polonius seems to forget his lines, and uh, Shakespeare actually liked that joke. He, he makes it several times. Um, but in Hamlet, it's in particular Polonius is clearly played by one of the older actors mm -hmm. and he is saying he's talking to the king and queen and he says but wait what was I about to say by the mass I was about to say something and the audience is all anxious mm -hmm. because oh no this actor has forgotten his lines which I actually um, saw happen in um, there was a, um, an 80 year old actor who had been in um, the ART and also in the Actor Shakespeare Company um, for years and years and years. And I went to see him in The Tempest and he did forget his lines. <laughs> and um, he got them back, but um, it's a sort of thing that can, that can and does happen. And Shakespeare describing in the Seven Ages of Man's speech in As You Like It describes old people as forgetful. And um, so it's something he observed. Some people think, I don't, but um, um, Simon Russell Beale in his version of King Lear thought that he, he talked to some doctors and he thought that Lear had a particular kind of um, dementia which is called Louis body dementia, and he read everything that he could about it and then played Lear as having that kind of dementia. I think it totally doesn't work. Um, but it is, uh, you know, there, are, there is something called medical humanities where people look at um, the descriptions. Well, we talked about this already, about the, the moment, um, if I forget the, oh, Jerusalem, um, let my right hand lose its cunning and my tongue cleave to the roof, to the roof of my mouth. And that's a description in the Psalms of a certain kind of stroke, or of, a, um, of a left brain stroke. And um, so the idea that actors, as they got old, would be forgetful suggests that there are people who do have to act until they're old and can no longer do it anymore. The Shakespeare himself retired at age 48 or so and uh, went back to, to Stratford and then died four years later, um, probably, but this is medical humanities again, of tertiary syphilis. And uh, it's not clear, but uh, symptoms are consistent with tertiary syphilis, which again suggests uh, the fun he was having in London and the number of people he was having fun with. Yeah. And the other thing I had to ask was, um, of course, 
it's fairly well known that Shakespeare doesn't have any descendants. He didn't have any children. So he had children. Oh, he did have children. Yeah. Okay. He had grandchildren. But he doesn't have descendants no. now. Not that we know. So then where did the, I guess, the estate end up going? Collateral descendants. I see. Okay. So, um, and he very famously left his wife in his will. What did he leave her? His second best bed. The second best bed, <laughs> uh, which looks worse than it might be um, because there is the leading theory is you always gave the best bed to a guest, like, I don't know, Duncan. <laughs> oh, Macbeth, we should talk about that. Yeah, part. and I mean, he doesn't want to kill his wife, so he just gives her the second best bed. Right, and the second best bed is the marriage bed. That is, the best bed in the house is not the marriage bed. The second best bed is. So it may look, um, it may look to us like an insult, but there's a theory that it didn't, that it looked like a lovely gesture um, in uh, the 17th century. At any rate, uh, in the sonnets, Shakespeare or his speaker is telling a story, and the story is partly about why the young man should be interested in an older man like him. And one reason is that the older man, this is not what you're going to see in Sonnet 12, which you're about to look at, but one reason is that the older man um, should say, should, should, should make the young man think about two things. One is you think I'm old? Wait till you're as old as I am. It's going to happen. Um, don't think you're exempt. So the uh, very fact that the young man um, thinks that the older man is too old for him should be a warning to the young man to get off his high horse because he's going to be thrown off that high horse anyhow. And um, you know, very famous sonnet of that sort is, that time of year thou mayest in me behold when yellow leaves or none, or few do hang upon those boughs that shake against the cold, bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. So oh, we you, read that one too. We think. did. Um, everyone knows that sonnet, Sonnet 73? Is this, is there anyone not familiar with it? You can say it's okay. God, no. Okay. I don't know anything about Sorry? No, that's a different one. That's, no, that's, uh, that's the, the lady. That no, okay, so this is that time of year. Is that the sonnet? That time of year. So he's talking to the young man, sonnet 73. That time of year thou mayest in me behold when yellow leaves or none or few do hang upon those boughs that shake against the cold, bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. So if you look at me, what time of year can you see in me? Yeah, is that what you're saying? Yeah. When the time when yellow leaves or none or few do hang upon those boughs that shake against the cold. Thank you. That shake against the cold. Um, so I'm looking shake e. <laughs> you, do, you don't think that's there? Shake against the cold? You really don't? Upon those boughs? Upon those spears that shake against the cold? Would that convince you? If he'd written those spears that shake against the cold? Yes, it would, but he didn't. Um, <laughs> he wrote, upon those boughs that shake against the cold. Still, long wooden things. Shaking. 
If I turned in an essay that used like an unusual proportion of words that begin with the letter C, would you think that was significant? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know what I would tell word. you? I would tell you to read Wallace Stevens's poem called The Comedian as the Letter C. There you go. I would definitely tell you that. Its main character is named Crispin. Um, great, great, great poem. Um, very bitter poem by Wallace Stevens. The comedian is the letter C. Um, at any rate, upon those boughs that shake against the cold. So those boughs against that shake against the cold. He's comparing himself um, to a tree. Perhaps you can feel that he's he's got um, that that he's shaky. That he is old and is has tremors. Um, or at any rate, that the boughs that shake against the cold are like the warmth of youth is gone, not only from the world around him, but in him. It's an odd metaphor and worth spending uh, a semester or two on, which we won't. But that time of year thou mayst in me behold when yellow leaves, or none, or few do hang upon those boughs that shake against the cold, bare, ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. So the boughs of the tree are like choirs where birds used to sing, but they're now gone. Bare, ruined choirs. Why ruined? Those who know of Henry VIII? So one of the things that happened when Protestantism was introduced... <laughs> that is so Warm gratifying. Word. That is so gratifying. Explain. Well, like, is I mean, would it have to do with like hymns and maybe like the language? Well, it has to do with the that, but it also has to do with the fact that Henry took over the monasteries. Yeah, and he took all the money and the land from them. Yeah, yeah. and the reason England is so full of picturesque ruins is that they were intentionally ruined. Yeah. They were yeah. destroyed. The so monasteries were destroyed. The, yeah, so the, yeah, he basically just like took all like the wealth from it because like Protestant churches aren't really supposed to be fancy. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, technically we're Anglican, but yes. Yeah. Yes. The Anglican. Yeah, Anglican churches are like more fancy, but like not as. Yeah. <laughs> but basically, the 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 abbeys and monasteries and nunneries were um, destroyed. And, and you, can see, you can still see ruins all over England, and you can see the choirs where the Catholic um, uh, devotion used to be sung, and now those are bare ruined choirs. So he's now comparing himself to a season which is like the tree that stands for the season, which looks like ruins that you can see all over England of um, monasteries. So that's the first stanza. And um, the second stanza is... In me thou seest the fading of such day as after sunset fadeth in the west, which by and by black night doth take away death's second self that seals up all in rest. So in the first stanza, you can see that it's late in the year, but it's also daylight. That is, yellow, yellow leaves, or none or few do hang, but you can see the color of the leaves. And it's windy, so you have a sense of a cold autumn day. In the second stanza, time has been reduced. In the first stanza, a lifetime has been reduced to a year. In the second stanza, the year has been reduced to a day. 
and it's as though one part of your brain is keeping track of the idea that it's later the same day that the first stanza was describing because now the sun is setting and but it's also later within that day than it's been in the year in the metaphor of the first stanza. So you can feel, does that make sense to people? Mm-hmm. Let's say the first stanza says it's autumn, and let's say it's, a, it's, Octo- it's an October day. Um, so we're 10 twelfths through the year, or 9 and a half twelfths through the year. In the second stanza, it's more like we're 11 twelfths through the day. Um, that is that it's now 11 p.m. or 10 p.m. or whatever, um, but that we're farther through the day than we were through the year. Then the third stanza is, In me thou seest the, the glowing of such fire as on the ashes of... No, sorry, in me thou seest the embers of such fire as on the ashes of his youth doth lie... Um, um, as on the deathbed, whereon it must expire, consumed with that which it was nourished by. So now it's later in the day. Lifetime is now how long a fire burns when you light it at night to stay warm. And now the fire is burning out, and it is being choked by the very thing which nourished it. The ashes, it's lying on the ashes of its own youth. It burned the wood. That's the, its youth was the wood that it burned. So it's as though the bare ruined choirs or the, um, the, the um, boughs of the first stanza have now become the seasoned wood that's being burned away, turned into ashes and choking the fire that burned them into ashes. Are you extremely subtly reading this off something or have you memorized this entire thing? I memorized it. <laughs> of course you have. So, which is why I'm getting a couple of words wrong. So, um, but notice there that there's a kind of give and take. That is that the fire lies on the ashes of its youth but the youth has been turned into ashes. So young youth Consider that this is what happens to youth. And then the couplet is, This thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong to love that well which thou must leave ere long. Which on the face of it sounds like, you can see that I'm old and dying, and you perceive that, and that makes your love all the stronger because you would love me as I am about to fade away. And that's great. I'm so glad that you love me this way. But it's also odd that he says to love that well which thou must leave ere long, as though it's the young man who's doing the leaving, not the speaker but the young man. And so what is it that he has to leave ear long? Well, it's what we all have to leave ear long, which is life, or youth in this case. The young man is um, now loving life, which he too must leave ear long. 
Um, the word leave is picking up, although with a different meaning, on yellow leaves in the first quatrain, because leaves, you must leave, that is, you must put forth leaves as well. That's a secondary and far-off meaning, but, but the echo is there. And those leaves will become yellow or none or few. And so it's a warning to the young man, not only I'm old, but you're getting old and don't think that you're exempt. So one aspect of what he says to the young man is don't believe that you're exempt from what happens to me. Um, and there's a hint there that when you're an old man, you're going to want to find love. And a good way to um, convince yourself that that will be possible is to pay it forward. And so pay it forward to me, and then someone will pay it forward to you when you're my age, when you hit 38 and are decrepit and um, terrible. Yeah? So uh, a slightly different way that I saw it was, was, um, was that this thou perceivest which makes that love more strong, like I am old and therefore you love me stronger, to love that well which thou must leave ere long, also, I guess, could mean to love someone who's going to die. Yeah, oh, it, yes. Yeah. someone who you have to leave because I am going right. to die. Right, yeah, and that's, that's, the, that's the clear primary meaning. Mm -hmm. But I'm suggesting that there's also a veiled, um, veiled pressure there, which is what looks like praise also has the effect of saying uh, it's, it's, it's amazing that you're acting this way um, not because everything about you is perfect and everything that you do is generosity, which is what it looks like, but it's amazing that you're acting that way given the fact that you are also falling apart. And so that, in a way, is the veiled um, uh, counter sense within the sonnet. There's a lot of that in the sonnets. You couldn't just get that out of 73, but there are lots of sonnets which are ambiguous praise of the young man. Yeah, Andrew. Uh, just now, I suddenly reminded of another poem, uh, Elegy written in a county churchyard. Yeah. Uh, there is also uh, a discussion of uh, age. Uh, yeah. Uh, even in your ashes. Uh, yeah. Uh, even in your ashes, uh, burned with fire, won't fire. Yeah. Even in our ashes. The wanted fire. Wanted fire. Yeah. Uh, even from the tomb, the voice of nature cries. Yeah. I, I think perhaps it's inspired from the sonnet. Oh, yeah, I'm sure Gray is inspired by Shakespeare. Gray uh, inspired. Yeah. This is Gray's great poem, Elegy, which you know. I um, also know. And you also know. <laughs> um, <laughs> Elegy in a Country Churchyard. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so um, just to get back to Tottle for a second. So remember the title of Tottle's Miscellany is um, um, Songs and Sonnets of um, Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey, and other. Um, Falstaff in Henry IV, Part One, at one lovely moment says he doesn't want to go to war, and he says, um, I'd rather than um, 50 pounds that I had um, song, my songs and sonnets in my pocket. Um, that is, he wishes he had his copy of Tottle's Miscellany with him. And in Hamlet, the grave digger um, sings a song which he changes. Um, age with his stealing hands, 
has clawed me in his clutch, sings the gravedigger in Hamlet, and that is a parody of a poem in um, Tottle's Miscellany. So it's just a way of showing uh, the connection between uh, the first printed sonnets in English, which Tottle was the first to print, um, brought to England, because Tottle's printing Wyatt, brought to England by Wyatt, and Shakespeare's love of that book. So at any rate, um, the other reason that if you're the young man and Shakespeare is um, uh, suggesting, is trying to seduce you, um, the other reason Shakespeare gives you, besides the fact that you're going to be old, is that there's a way to avoid that, kind of. In the first 20 sonnets, the way to avoid it is to have a child who will look like you but be young. But after that, the way to avoid it is to have Shakespeare write poems about you. Because if he writes poems about you, he will make you immortal in his poems. And um, that idea, it's called the eternizing trope, that idea, uh, which goes back to Latin poetry, that um, you should definitely find a poet to be your lover is because the poet will then um, make you remembered and mentioned in classes 500 years later or 2,000 years later. And wouldn't that be cool? Do you guys think it would? Mm-hmm. Would you? Sorry? Yeah. So what would you think about taking up with a great... What, what would you think if you knew that if you took up with a great poet who might just be a little bit decrepit, but they really... But if you knew that if you take up with this person, then in 500 years people will know who you are because you will be um, a character, um, you will be the object of the great poet's description of how much they love you. Would you do it? I yeah. consider that a criteria for everyone I've ever dated. So. <laughs> there you go. I only date decrepit poets. As long as they're great, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, I mean, I, 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 what do you look at me? I don't have <laughs> yes, Cassie. I think it's kind of creepy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Weinstein, anyone? Um, yeah. You could be made a great movie star, right? If you sleep with Weinstein. Um, Whoa! <laughs> no, it, th- th- there's there's a Me Too aspect to this. Oh, no, no, no. I, I got that, but the, but the reference that you made was, was rather topical and yes. very overt. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, Elvie. Oh, isn't that what Sonnet 18 is about? So long um, when the eternal lies that grow yeah. so long as realizes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, of course, the irony is that no one is quite sure who the young man is. <laughs> so um, there he is, famous 500 years later, but who? There who? The ideas. Oh, yeah, there are ideas. Who might it be? Um, there's several people it might be. Uh, the Earl of Southampton is probably the leading candidate, but no one knows. And people really don't know who the dark-haired lady is. Yeah. I also think that when they say that, it's not really that pe- like this poet is going to write a poem about you so it'll immortalize you. It's that it'll immortalize the poet. Like, the person who gets... I, I understand that, like, theoretically, we are thinking about this, like, very old and long dead young man, yeah. but we're not reading this because we're like devotees or even interested <laughs> in that guy's life we're reading it because of Shakespeare Yeah. and I think that, like I guess it's just a semantic argument no, no, yeah, that yeah. important, but like it, yeah. it isn't really doing anything for you in a hurry 
like even if a poet is sort of expounding on how great of a person you were, yeah, like it's still, still dead and not the focus of study. Right, and it's still it's still the description and not the thing described that matters. Yeah, um, and I think that no one doubts that. In other words, I don't think that I think that part of the irony there um, is that it's ne- I I don't think it's ever been the case that someone thought I will sleep with this person because they will mention me in a great po- well I'm not sure maybe it is the case I'm thinking of a friend of mine. Well, you said <laughs> earlier, that's hilarious. You did say earlier there is to a degree to which we recognize love because it would make a good poem. Yes, so exactly. So this is the actual, like, apotheosis right. of that. Like, this yeah. is the end of that. Yeah. So I'm sure somebody has. Yeah. Like, they've been with a writer who's like, oh, well, not maybe not solely because of that, but, but they think about the fact that maybe that person will write about them. Yeah, no, and I, I think for some people, uh, the fact that someone's a writer is, is attractive. Um, but writers tend to think it's more attractive than it necessarily is. Um, yeah. So could like Hermia be like an like an avatar of the dark haired lady? That's huh, what, also good. what I thought of yeah. in your description. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. No no no. The the question of um, of whether the fact that she's dark haired and so on, whether um, that that detracts from her beauty. Uh, it, it 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 appears in several plays. Um, Cleopatra, for example, will um, think as she's um, as when Antony's away, she kind of imagines him, and she says, "Think on me." So think about me. Think on me. That am with Phoebus amorous pinches black, and wrinkled deep in time. So think about me. Um, Think about um, me, a person who is black, because as in The Merchant of Venice, um, I live near the sun, um, the, the way the Prince of Morocco does in uh, The Merchant of Venice when he says, mislike me not for my complexion, uh, the burnished livery of the something sun to whom I am a neighbor and near bread. Um, so... Um, Shakespeare is certainly interested in um, praising dark and dark-haired women in his plays as well as in the sonnets. Um, at any rate, the look at sonnet 12, not because it's a great sonnet, but because I want it to be echoing in your mind. I mean, it is a great sonnet. It's Shakespeare. Um, notice that the form of the Shakespearean sonnet is, although I, I, it's not laid out this way in this one, unlike the Petrarchan sonnet, what's called the Shakespearean sonnet, he didn't actually invent it, but he was the one uh, who wrote it most amazingly, um, is in three quatrains, so we have A, B, A, B, time, night, prime, white. Then a second quatrain, C, D, C, D, leaves, herd, sheaves, beard, or bird, as it would have been pronounced then. Then um, E, F, E, F, make, go, forsake, grow, and then G, G, defense, hence. So in a Shakespearean sonnet, you get three quatrains and a couplet. And... Generally, the quatrains are often 
say sort of parallel things the way we saw in Sonnet 73. You see that, you see that time of year. You see that time of day. You see um, the fading of the fire late on that night. And then a kind of summing up or moral or conclusion. So here we have, when I do count the clock that tells the time, so when I look at time passing, when I do count the clock that tells the time and see the brave day sunk in hideous night. So when I see the day turns into hideous night, sinks into night. When I behold the violet past prime and sable curls all silvered o'er with white. So when I see flowers that are drooping, the violet past prime. Um, prime means, ever, do people know that prime means spring? Uh, how do you say spring in Italian, anyone? Spring. Yeah, in Italian as well. And in French? Prime time. Prime time. Um, so when I behold the violet, so if you're in the prime of your life, you're in the springtime your life. When I beheld the violet past prime, and sable curls all silvered o'er with white. What sable? What color? Brown. Black. Black. Oh, black. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's called um, more stuff you don't need to know, um, but that you should know because it's so fascinating. Um, the way you did coats of arms, the way you do coats of arms still, is there particular colors? How many people... Um, how many people are in Bert's class in his Gothic novel class? So do you remember the last line of The Scarlet Letter? No. You don't? My goodness. Anyone remember it? On a field sable. So um, the narrator of The Scarlet Letter is saying um, you could imagine a heraldic description, a heraldic shield of um, the grave. And its legend, that is its caption, would be on a field sable, the letter A, jewels, G-U-L-E-S, pronounced jewels. Do you guys say GIF or JIF? Who says GIF? Huh? It's graphics energy. I know. Who says JIF? All right. I say, I say JIF for the peanut butter. But yes. JIF for the peanut butter, GIF for the original. Okay. So, anyhow, it's jewels, not ghouls. Um, so, what sable is, is black fur. And the way you describe coats of arms is through the color of natural objects rather than the name of the color themselves. Um, so hyacinth, for example, is a flower, and it's the color orange, but it's a way of saying orange. In fact, orange is um, the name of a fruit, and it's only a color secondarily. So on a field, sable means on a black background, like the blackboard, the letter A, jewels. Jewels is a red ermine. So it's the letter A, scarlet. The letter A, bright red. So um, sable means black. Yeah? Isn't this, I don't, know, I don't know if there's a helpful connection, but isn't this almost exactly how he describes is it Hamlet's father's beard in Hamlet? Yep. As being sable with like a streak of gray. A sable silvered. Yeah. Yep. Yes. So sable and um, then also um, later in Hamlet, um, the knight is described as sable and um, 
Pyrrhus is described as total jewels, um, street with the blood of fathers, mothers, daughters, sons, because he's gone out and slaughtered the Trojans in um, the speech that the player uh, recites to Hamlet and Polonius. So, when I do count the clock that tells the time and see the brave day sunk in hideous night, when I behold the violet past prime, by the way, another natural object that gives its name to a color. Violets aren't called violet because they're violet. Violet is called violet because it's the same color as the flower. When I behold the violet past prime, that's why violets are not blue. When I behold the violet past prime and sable curls all silvered or with white, that is, people have gotten old and their black curls have become white. When lofty trees I see barren of leaves, so this is a kind of um, pre uh, precursor to Sonnet 73. When lofty trees I see barren of leaves which erst from heat did canopy the herd and summer's green all girded up in sheaves borne on the beer with white and bristly beard. So that means that all the crops have been harvested and they have been bound up um, and um, brought to um, uh, the storehouses, brought to the barns. Then of thy beauty do I question make. So when I see all these beautiful things getting old, then of thy beauty do I question make that thou among the wastes of time must go, since sweets and beauties do themselves forsake and die as fast as they see others grow. So notice, you're young and beautiful now, but it's not going to last. To quote a friend of Shakespeare's, Thomas Nash, beauty is but a flower which wrinkles will devour. Queens have died young and fair. Brightness falls from the air. Dust hath closed Helen's eye. I am sick. I must die. So that's uh, from Nash's great song, A Litany in a Time of Plague. The most famous two words in that song are brightness, or the most famous line is brightness falls from the air. Uh, Great, great line. Brightness falls from the air. So Then, when I see these things, then of thy beauty do I question make, that thou among the waste of time must go, since sweets and beauties do themselves forsake and die as fast as they see others grow. And nothing against time's scythe can make defense, save breed to brave him when he takes thee hence. So basically, you can't do anything to stop time except to reproduce. That's the only way that you can get back at time. Um, I don't think time cares if you have a child, because time's going to do it to your child as well. Um, But that is how he is, uh, again, suggesting that the young man should settle down, get married, have children. This is one of the early sonnets. So now let's go back for a last time, I hope, to Act 5, Scene 3. Um, not clear when the sonnet was written, but probably roughly in the same time as Macbeth. Uh, here, I'm going to tell you a word you don't know, unless your French is really good, but it's also an English word. Roughly the same luster 
asked Macbeth? What's it mean? Yeah. Well, luster to me means like how, how much shine something is. Yeah, right, wrong. Luster is a technical word for half a decade. So you can call five-year periods lusters. Isn't that cool? <laughs> so if any of you is a poet, you should do it. Ooh, um, so I am four lusters old. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But but enough lusters will make you lose your luster. That <laughs> this sonnet. Thank you. In a nutshell. So, um, which you could be bounded in. Uh, so. Now, Act Five, Scene Three. Um, Line 19, take thy face hence, he says to the servant, and then Satan, who we haven't heard of before. And um, again, what we have here is one of the last people who is still with Macbeth, still loyal to him. I am sick at heart when I behold. Satan, I say. So notice those words, when I behold that he doesn't pick up on. This is what we started talking about last time. So Shakespeare does say what he beholds. When I behold the violet past prime and sable curls all silvered or with white, it's as though Macbeth is going to say something similar, but then he doesn't. When I behold Satan, I say, and then he goes off on a diff- different track. This push will cheer me, ne- cheer me ever or deceit me now, I have lived long enough. Now, I just want to, those of you who took the Shakespeare class with me last semester will know this, but I just want to point out that there's a really wonderful similar moment in King Lear where Lear is about to soliloquize um, on the heath. He sent everyone else inside, and then he says, you houseless poverty, and he begins a soliloquy. And then he notices that the fool is still there. And he says, nay, in, boy, in. And he interrupts a soliloquy, his soliloquy, to talk to the fool. And then he starts up the soliloquy again, but in a different place. He never finishes the line, you houseless poverty. Um, instead, he starts off again. He picks up the word um, houseless later on in the soliloquy. But Shakespeare is doing what I think is a really fascinating thing, and I think this is, a, this is an exact balance to the moment in King Lear, which is that you have the main tragic figure about to give a soliloquy, and then he remembers someone. Someone of no power, someone of no political importance, someone of no um, social importance. Lear remembers the fool. Macbeth remembers Satan. And the soliloquy is derailed. So I am sick at heart when I behold Satan, I say, this push will cheer me ever, deceit me now. I have lived long enough. So we don't know what he beholds. We don't know where that sentence was going to end. But he's, this sounds so realistic 
I have lived long enough. So here, the whole idea of time that we've been looking at, that is, the time passes, that you can't stay on the bank and shoal of time, that time is always going to um, uh, sink, brave day is always going to sink in hideous night. I have lived long enough. My way of life has fallen into the sear, the yellow leaf. So, again, when what in Sonnet 73? Anyone remember? The That's, yellow leaf. Yes, good. Um, when yellow leaves or none or few do hang upon those boughs that shake against the cold. So notice here that not only do we have the reference to yellow leaves, but also that Shakespeare is doing the same, really, another really neat thing that only Shakespeare does. He does it in Sonnet 73, he does it here, which is yellow leaves or none or few. That is, the most vivid image is the first one, the yellow leaves or none, maybe I don't even see yellow leaves, or few, there are few leaves out there. And it's as though we get from, we go from vividness to less vividness. Here, and that's unusual, if you take a creative writing class and you're doing um, micro, if, if, you're, if you're paying attention to the microglot, that is um, just, just very microscopic stylistic things, one of the things that you'll learn is that you should build and have your most vivid adjective be the last one, not the first one. Um, Shakespeare breaks that rule because he's Shakespeare. And so yellow leaves or none or few. Here, he breaks the rule as well. My way of life has fallen into the sear, the yellow leaf. Sear is a much stronger word than yellow. But it's as though the whole point is that the strength, the power, the vividness of the image is fading. So Seer, it's as though he's overdoing it. What he's trying to describe is how the impulse and power and strength of his character is going. I have lived long enough. And you shouldn't describe that by having your language get more powerful. He knows that seer is overdoing it. So my way of life has fallen into the seer, the yellow leaf, not even seer, which means dry, about to, about to um, crumble. Um, the yellow leaf, and that which should accompany old age. Coleridge is, I think, really good on these lines. And that which should accompany old age. So now we know he's old, and that or getting there, he is elderly. Um, you guys probably don't know that elderly doesn't isn't a synonym for old, although it's used as one now. Um, it actually means getting old on the way to getting old. Um, so elderly is um, more your sixties than your eighties. So. Um, and that which should accompany old age as honor, love, obedience, troops of friends. That's what a good old age would look like. 
honor, love, obedience, troops of friends I must not look to have. So I can't hope for that. I can't look to have such things. And that which should accompany old age as honor, love, obedience, troops of friends, I must not look to have, but in their stead, curses. So in my old age, what I can look forward to is curses. He doesn't know he's about to die, but it doesn't matter. He doesn't know that someone not of woman born is about to kill him, but it doesn't matter. He's lived long enough. Later he's going to say, I begin to be a weary of the sun. Yeah. He's, he's ruled for, what do you say, like 17 years yeah, or something yeah, like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how old would he be? Well, if you think that he's, he and Lady Macbeth are probably around the same age, and if you think that um, it seems that she was still in childbearing um, years when at the start of the play, um, that would probably make him in his late 40s, early 50s yeah. now. Which is old at the time. Yeah. Um, so Shakespeare died at 52. Um, I must not look to have, but in there said, curses not loud but deep, mouth honor, breath, which the poor heart would fain deny and dare not. So look at the sympathy that he has for those who don't want to even give him mouth honor. All he will get from them is breath, which the poor heart would fain deny, would like to deny, and dare not. And then he calls again for Satan. And Satan finally comes in. And um, then he hears of the um, uh, what's happening to Lady Macbeth. And then we get the famous tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow speech. Um, you remember life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. Um, and Cavell is really good at pointing out <coughs> that struts and frets um, means um, walks and worries, or walks proudly and worries. Um, it's important to recall that shadow, um, walking shadow, uh, shadow is a word that means actor, um, so that to be alive is simply to act your part and um, not even to have, not even to write your own lines, not even to have um, your own initiative within your hour upon the stage. You can only act out strutting and fretting. But I want you to remember this speech, which is not a much talked about speech. Obviously, tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow is, and we did talk about it, um, talked about the last syllable of recorded time. Um, but remember this speech because, again, you're going to see a parallel but also inverted version of this in Antony and Cleopatra. So the thing to notice here is that Macbeth has no friends left. Satan is his last friend. And um, the everyone else, starting most with Banquo, but everyone else is gone. And yet, he needs someone to talk to. In Antony and Cleopatra, the figure whom Antony will address in much the same way is a character named Eros. 
E-R-O-S. That, that is, uh, I'm sure that Freud had something in mind with that. <laughs> you think? Well, um, I mean, yeah. would you have thought that, I'm sure that there's some degree to which they're related. Or at least what is you the, mean, Europe, what's the etymology of that name? Oh, it means love. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So as in erotic. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, the uh, idea of love Freud calls, well, Freud very famously calls Eros the mischief maker. Um, I don't know how much Freud had to say about Antony and Cleopatra. He had a lot to say about King Lear and a lot to say about Hamlet. And um, some really interesting things to say about the Merchant of Venice. Um, but at any rate, it is, Eros is Antony's last friend. And, uh, and Antony will have a similar moment with him at the beginning of Act 4 of Antony and Cleopatra. So just remember this when we get to that. And so that is, so saying, the saying Eros is his last friend is in itself fun. Yeah. Um, and in the Arden, it, it says in the notes that they're not sure if Satan was pronounced that way in yes. the but a pun is assumed. Yeah. So the same idea, Satan is his last friend. Okay, nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Do you see that meme? I saw a good meme yesterday. Um, Satan Welcome to, um, welcome to my chamber of tortures now that you're dead. Ha, ha, ha. Me. Oh, man, you're just another guy living in his father's base basement. <laughs> Satan. Whoops. <laughs> so you may have to remember that if, you, if you're going to face Satan.